All right, if you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10, we're going straight through, and after four months, we're through 10 chapters, so only 40 or 30 more chapters to go. Um, in my previous life, in my current life, uh, sometimes, I still teach English at the high school, and so this week I decided, because uh, I greeted to it right before Christmas, to sub for a few days at the high school. And I do that basically to make sure I don't become a really entrenched professional Christian, if you will, where all the people you ever talk to are like church people, and it reminds me to be a little more sane or kind of sobers me to the, to the reality of life because you spend your time with 16 to 18-year-old kids and you get really uh, livened up quickly about how out of touch with life you are. Um, these kids uh, are the school... Marysville Pilchuck High School has divided itself into, as some of you may know if you have kids there, into like a, dump, a bunch of different schools. And so it's, it's really quite crazy, but each school has a specific like focus. One's like biomed and one's uh, technology, like mechanical stuff. One's um, kind of more traditional. One is uh, communications. And so I subbed for a few days in the one that is mechanics, technical stuff. And so the aspirations of these kids, not that they're wrong, but these are the aspirations of these kids, as I sat down and asked them, was, I want to be a diesel mechanic, I want to be a uh, professional quad rider, I want to be a, own my own business and build hot rod cars, and I want to run a landscaping uh, business type of deal. So those kinds of students, so they're kind of um, mechanically blue-collar inclined kind of kids, and so I go in pretty much dressed like this, and you go into a, a mechanic type of school where, you know, you're Mr. Ford. So they're like, you know, all the jokes, like, oh, Mr. Ford, do you drive a Ford, Mr. Chevy, you know, all this stuff that I've heard for the last umpteenth years. And so whenever I, you know, they, hey, Mr. Ford, haha, do you drive a Ford? I say, no, I don't drive a Ford. This time, so I could hear it, a kid in a camouflage Cabela's hat with a Carhartt jacket and huge boots that look like you could just crush a man with, says, whispering, but loud enough for me to hear to his buddies at the table, I bet he drives a Prius. <laughs> and I was like, huh. Well, you know, it's like, what does that mean? And I think I know what it means as they're trying to, like, size me up of what kind of, oh, you didn't drive a truck, obviously. So um, it was interesting to, to see their perceptions of me and then, I kind of crush those as I'm joking around, and later it comes out that I'm a pastor, and they're like, you pa- pastors don't act like you don't do that. And I was like, yeah, shut up, sit down. So it was, uh, it was fun and enjoyable, but it reminded me of how, how much, um, you know, you tell people uh, who you are or whatnot, and they, they, make quick, they already have an assessment of who you are. And, um, I've told people uh, in particular, like, you know, people that are in the church or that I interact with that I'm Jewish, and people don't know what to do with that, like, What's that mean exactly? You're like, you're like wear a yarmulke all the time and you used to have a long beard? What, what is that? And so Christians in particular don't really know what to do with that. And so I'm Jewish because my mom's Jewish and she has um, confessed faith in Jesus Christ, but the rest of her family is, is Jewish. I have an uncle who's a rabbi and grandfathers who are rabbis and, you know, the whole Jewish side of it. My, my Jewish grandmother um, died about oh, two months ago or three months ago, and so they had a Jewish funeral. It was very interesting. And, um, but I had that side of me, and I think as, 
as Christians, especially kind of in, be honest with you, newer churches, um, or maybe newer people and believers, they kind of lose sight of the roots of Christianity that are ingrained in Judaism. And the Jewish culture is not something that we really appreciate or really think much about, because we think that because Christ died and, you know, the Jew- Jewish stuff just kind of ceased. It's all gone. Everything. And there's no value in it whatsoever anymore. Forgetting that Jew- uh, Jesus was Jewish, his disciples were Jewish. Um, and so I have, because I've been raised in it, have learned to appreciate uh, Judaism and the roots that point towards Christ and remind us that when we're talking about these people in Exodus, we're talking about the one church that grew into what we are today. And I think that, like I've sat at Passovers with the true Jewish Passovers where everyone there is Jewish except me, and my mom has walked through and told me, well, here's Jesus. See, this is Jesus. This, this is Jesus. And just, it's like amazing to see how it's there. And so some of the traditions that I've grown up with um, I think are super valuable. And one of the traditions that's not necessarily, uh, well, it is in the Bible, but it's a tradition that came out of the culture, so to speak, is the use of something called a mezuzah. And some of you might be familiar with that. I think we have a picture of it. Um, it says mezuzah on there. But what it is, is uh, inside this uh, little uh, receptacle is a small piece of parchment. Usually it's made from a kosher animal and and uh, on, written on this is some in particular words written in Hebrew. And they are written with a particular type of pen, with a particular type of ink, in a particular way. And they scroll this thing up and they stick it in there. And what happens is the, what's written on there really is the Hebrew text from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. And Deuteronomy 11, uh, chapter, um, chapter 11, 13 through 21. And... They secure these mezuzahs on the doorpost, the upper third, right-hand side of the doorpost, and they, it's the door that the, you, you, know, you don't stick it on your bathroom door, necessarily. It's the door of the entrance of the home, the door that people most often walk through, and so people will see it. And it's tilted because many moons ago, two Jewish rabbis disagreed on whether it should be horizontal or vertical, so they decided to compromise because they really stated that it would be better to have peace in the house and to remind ourselves of that than to have one person be right or wrong. So they tilt it, and there it is. And so I grew up, my mom put one of those on our door and explained it to us. And it wasn't until I got older and actually read Deuteronomy and chapter 6 and chapters 11 and understood what actually it was. And it was, in fact, and all of my mom, I'm sure, told me this, to fulfill what amounts to a commandment of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Matthew 22, uh, a lawyer comes up to Jesus, as lawyers often do, to try and kind of trick Jesus or, or kind of get him, catch him in a, in a moment where he might be wrong, and ask him what the greatest commandment was. And out of what amounts to about 600 plus commandments that you can obtain from the Torah, the Jewish law, he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he said, as you probably have heard, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. And this is uh, the first commandment that we in my home teach our children. We teach Fisher the first verse he learned and he always loved to say, Deuteronomy. It was like his favorite thing. He didn't care about the verse. He just wanted to say, Deuteronomy 5. So if you ask my daughter, so I have a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, 4-5-year-old, and then... Uh, a three-year-old, if you ask my little three-year-old, 
daughter who you can hear very easily. She has this squeaky little voice, and you'll hear, Daddy. But if you ask her, what's Deuteronomy 6.5, she will say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now you saw, now you saying, Deuteronomy 6.5. She likes saying Deuteronomy 6.5. But at the core of that is our faith. That is the thing that we most should aspire to, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Though I think it's probably the last thing I want on my doorpost. If we're honest, which typically people aren't in church. And so you put it on the doorpost, and you walk in every day, and you're supposed to see this mezuzah, and you can imagine, for me, how convicting it would be knowing probably what I did at my job that day. Or knowing maybe when I drove home, watching that girl jog down the street, maybe I had a lustful thought. And as I walk in the door, I'm like, oh gosh. Nice. Start my every day, as I, or my every evening as I come home, feeling really good about myself. But I think it's a sobering reminder and I almost and I, I'm wearing one around my neck right now typically don't but I thought it appropriate because it's my grandmother's and I thought I'd honor her for that I don't have one on my doorpost I doubt you do and most of you can say well I'm not Jewish I can't right but the fact is that I think a lot of us love many things more than God. And the fact is that we have given our heart, all of it at times, to many other things than God. Or we've given parts of it to God and parts of it to other things. I mean, really, what does it mean to love God with all of your heart? I don't think it's some emotional thing, especially when you start talking about all of your strength. If you know anything about biblical history, you know that the first king of Israel was a man named Saul. And Saul was followed up by a young man who did amazing things and slew a large giant named Goliath named David. And he came to the throne after Saul. And after David, his son came, whose name was Solomon. And so you can read these stories throughout 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Kings. And after Solomon died, Israel was divided into two nations into a northern nation and a southern nation because of a a tremendous amount of conflict. The north was called Israel, and the south was called Judah. And both of those nations that had once been together and now were divided had kings upon kings upon kings. And if you read about the kings, pretty much every king that rises, God's like, he was evil, he did evil, he worshipped other gods, he was terrible. And typically, every guy they say that's bad out of all these kings, and there's a handful that were good, but the bad ones, generally, they didn't love God with all their heart. And the first king of the northern portion, named Jeroboam, God said this about him in 1 Kings 14, verse 7. It says, thus, the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right, God speaking, in my eyes. And so 
Loving God with all of our hearts means, in many ways, if we go, he told Jeroboam here, believing and living as if we believe. There's a difference. And living as if we believe that what we should be doing is what is right in God's eyes all the time with everything. But I'm not convinced we asked that question. And thus, maybe that's why we don't have mezuzahs on our doors. It means glorifying God in all that we do. And the Bible even goes in specifically the little teeny things, whether you're eating or drinking. But it's not our natural tendency to approach life that way. And it means, which we see with Pharaoh here, you don't compromise what God has asked you to do. Because compromise, at its essence, is simply loving God some of the time. Giving Him some of who we are. Because we're very good at parceling up our lives into like the spiritual stuff and the non-spiritual stuff. And the pieces I'm going to give God and the pieces I'm not going to give God. And we follow most of God's commands. And we don't do most of what God tells us not to do. And we give Him lordship over most of our lives. But there are many times when I think all of us are guilty, and some of us more, of reinterpreting, kind of flexing, and compromising what we know God has already told us to do. And the difficult thing about that is that it has consequences. So I titled the sermon, God's Refusal, because at the core of it, he refuses to compromise. And you'll see with Pharaoh that he gets really close to giving it all to him. But he always is trying to keep some of it back. So we're going to read Exodus chapter 10 and see how Pharaoh offers to negotiate with God instead of actually do exactly what he says. Chapter 10, and we're in the eighth plague. We'll go through the last well, eight and nine today. It says this in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. And so Moses and Aaron went in, and Pharaoh said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they will cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen. From the day they came on the earth to this day, Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? And so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you go, your little ones. If ever let little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. 
And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail was left. And so Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind among the, upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought locusts. And locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled in the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. And they covered the face of the whole land, so the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. And not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called to Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And so he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Now, the text begins with God coming to Pharaoh through Moses and asking him flat out, How long? How long are you going to continue to be prideful and not humble yourself? I have taken everything away from you. What else do you have to lose until you will listen? How long? How long will it take you to repent and believe and demonstrate his patience? And I, I think about that with, with non-believers, but I even think about that with believers, for those people who claim to be Christians, and, and ask flat out, and I wonder, how long will you continue in your sin? How long? How long will you continue, God asks, to grieve me? I'm not a big visionary like, you know, seeing Jesus standing over Marysville or something freaky like that. But I did have an interesting image just the other day as I was driving. As I thought about my own depravity and my own brokenness, wondering what I would say if Jesus was sitting before me with his nailed scarred hands, maybe a little blood stains covering his palms. And as I held on to my sin and held on to my pride of knowing what I should do but not doing it, him saying, how long? How long is it not going to be a big deal to you? How long? And what I would say, and I was broken. And I think that we have to ask ourselves, or I hope God asks you, how long are you you going to pretend? How long are you going to not love God with all of your heart and just give Him parts of it. How long? How many years? Especially for those who have been a believer. I've been I raised in the church. How long does many years have to pass before you look back and go, man, I really wasted my life. How many years is that? Because first, the question is, how long before you will accept Christ? How long before you will submit yourself to his lordship? But the second question for a lot of us is, how long will it be till you start to live like him? 
And so Pharaoh is told or asked that question and says, if you don't repent, the locusts are coming. Now, locusts had come in Egypt before. This wasn't unusual, but he says it's going to be like it's never been seen before and will never be seen again. And he walks out. And this time, his advisors are like, dude, how long? How long are you going to let this keep going? Look at Egypt. We have nothing. Okay? We got sores all over our bodies. We still got piles of dead frogs that have been rotten for weeks now. We have no livestock, or at least a couple from the few people actually listened last time. All of our barley is gone. The flax is gone. We can't even have beer to sorrow or, you know, wet our sorrows. And now he's saying it's going to get worse. How long? Let them go. Let them serve their God. And so he calls them back. The first time he listens, you're like, okay, maybe he's got it. So he calls back Moses and Aaron, and instead of saying, go, just go, he tries to negotiate how he cannot fully follow what God has asked him to do. And this is actually the third of four times. He's, he's already done it twice, and he'll do it a fourth time. And I can't help but think how often so many people try to do that where they negotiate with God, I will follow you this far. I will give you these pieces. The first time he did it was in Exodus chapter 8. If you look back in verse 25, it was right after the flies. And he came to them. They were getting bitten by the flies. It was painful. And he seems like he's about to give in. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 8, Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice within the land. Within the land. They had asked to go three days out. He says, well, you can sacrifice like right out in the courtyard there. And Moses said, it would not be right to do so, because these people, man, we're going to sacrifice animals they think are sacred. They're going to hate us. We cannot set, so he refuses. We can't sacrifice in the land. We have to go out. No! So he goes away, and the next plague comes. Second time, again, After he refuses, he says, okay, later in chapter 8, just how far do you need to go? We need to go three days out. No, but you can go a little bit. You can go a little, not three days, just just stay close. And so he says, okay, and he goes and he prays that the plague will leave, and he hardens his heart and doesn't let him go again. Refuses. This third time we see in Exodus chapter 10, where he says, okay, who's going to go? Then Moses says, I want to take all the men, all the women, all the kids, and all the cattle. And Pharaoh says, no way. No way. If that ever happens, the Lord is definitely with you. That's what he says, pretty much. And it ain't ever happening, because there ain't no such Lord. So he refuses. He says, your guys can go. Take the men and leave your kids and your bride and your cattle here. And Moses says, no way. No way. This ain't just a daddy thing. Catch that? This ain't just a daddy thing. They refuses. That's the third time. And the fourth time, after the locust plague comes, and we'll see that, he tries to compromise again. And in verse 24 of chapter 10, he says this. 
When Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, your little ones may also go with you, which meant the moms as well, as implied. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So fourth time he said, well, let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. Well, how about this way? Now he said, well, you can take your kids and you can take your brides. Just leave all your animals. And he's probably expecting that Moses is not going to return. And so knowing the condition of his economy here, and the only people that didn't have any kind of you know, punishment and death in their livestock were the Israelites. So, hey, maybe I can make good and, you know, kind of come out even in this deal. I'll lose the slaves, but I'll get the cattle. And Moses says, no. He goes as far as saying, not a single hoof will be left here. We will take everything. And so many commentators go through, as I read a lot of them, and explain, like, why Moses was refusing to compromise all these times. And they like, well, and they kind of do some, God's people need to separate completely from the world. And, you know, nothing wrong with that. I just I understand what they're doing. I think that they aspire to, to good ideas, and some of them I really respect. But I think it's much simpler than that. And I'm just a simple guy, so I'll go with it. Flat out is any refusal, in this case Pharaoh's, any refusal that doesn't obey what God has asked you to do is a refusal to obey anything he's asked you to do. There's not just, well, we'll come this far. If God says, do this, and you go, well, I'll do this, you're not obeying. I think Pharaoh here, it didn't really matter how he refused, because there's a hundred ways that he could have refused and been creative about compromising. But any of them was a flat-out refusal to obey what simply God had said. And I think for Moses, it was probably really tempting to give in. It had to have been if he's human. It had to have been tempting to give in to Pharaoh. I imagine week after week, he's experiencing like this disappointment and then hope and then disappointment and then hope and then disappointment. And every time Pharaoh gives a little bit more, and he's got, okay, a little bit more, we're getting closer. He's got to be thinking, and maybe he's even talking to God. It's not recorded, but I would be saying, come on, God, this is close, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is, is this enough? It's close enough, right? And in some sense, you might feel even sorry for Pharaoh. Because you're like, man, he's doing most of what God asked him to do. Right? But if we think about it, he's not really doing what God asked him to do. And don't for a second believe that God is up there keeping tabs for us about, well, see, Sam, he followed me here today. I did a good job that day. Here he did it most of what I asked him to do. So, okay. Here, oh, he was a rebellious son of a gun. Nope, he was, I mean, he's not Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice, okay? There's like one list, a box that says, believe in Jesus. Yes, that's it. God doesn't work on this measurement scale. We either obey or we don't. We either accept what Christ has done for us in perfect obedience or we don't. And so I think... Like Moses, I began to think, okay, what are all the reasons that we use, we justify 
why we're actually not doing what God has asked us to do. Here's a couple. First, I think that we actually believe, and we say this to ourselves, that, okay, I'm not going to do exactly what God asked me to do because this decision here will take away some of the pain. I mean, Moses, that would have happened with Moses if he would have just obeyed. It would at least taken away some of the pain. It would alleviate some of the suffering. Some of the harsh slavery has probably been minimized because of the plagues at this point. But at least, okay, we'll have a momentary release of pain. It'll feel good. I see this a lot in people who get hurt in relationships and they want so desperately to have a relationship. And so they'll compromise going, okay... I just want to feel loved. So I'm going to do this because it will take away that feeling of pain for a second. And what I think they don't recognize, maybe none of us recognize, is that what will happen is that it might alleviate it for a moment. It will feel good. Otherwise, no one would sin. But what happens just as Adam and Eve in the garden sinned, shortly thereafter, the pain might have been, or the joy they might have experienced for the moment, was quickly replaced by the pain as they hid in shame from one another, from God. It's a new kind of pain. Shame that comes with having not done what God asked you to do. So you end up suffering more. So the pain might go for a moment, but you actually suffer more. And then sometimes we say, and maybe you don't, but I think a lot of people do, is that it will make men happy. It'll make people happy for me to do this. I'll maybe be admired or I won't rock the boat or whatever you want to call it. That would have happened to Moses. We haven't really heard much from the Israelites. Last thing we heard was they really didn't like Moses. They didn't think he was doing a good job because their situation was getting worse and their spirits were broken. And so for Moses, it's like, hey, I'm going to be popular. Hey, guys, Pharaoh's letting us go for a little bit. Woo! We're excited. But see, the problem is when we become more concerned with the approval of men versus the approval of God, it's a guaranteed compromise of what God's asked us to do, which is wrong. When we start focusing on ourselves, who we are, who loves me, who esteems me, who admires me, what I get out of it, we've lost sight of who God is and what He demands. It's very, on a very simple level, it's why we lie. Think about why you lie, which is clearly a compromise of what God has called us to do. He's told us don't lie, but we lie all the time. Call them white lies or whatever you want. We lie all the time. I'm not talking about the lie where, like, your wife comes up and goes, like fat in this dress. You know, you can be really cold and honest and say, yeah, you look kind of chunky. You know, you could say that, which, good luck. Or you can look past the physical and say, I think you're beautiful. I don't care what you wear. I don't care if you're a thousand pounds. I'll love you. It's a little different change. But I'm talking about deception, about lying. We do it all the time. And we do it because in the moment we are more concerned with what that person thinks of us than what God thinks of us. We want so much for that person to do. Did you do that? No, I didn't do that. Because we want that person to not think poorly of us or think better of us, whatever. That's why we lie. We seek men's approval for God's. So we compromise. Another reason we do it is that we believe that we may not get another chance. Moses probably thought that. Okay, this is it. Man, the fourth compromise. You can take everything but your cattle. Oh, man. Whoa, this, we, this could be it. He's not been told how many plagues there are. He hasn't been told what it's going to take. 
So he could be tempted right there to go, man, this is it. This could be the last chance we get. May not be another plague. But see, God's best for us, His best chance for us, never includes sin. Never. And you don't know, as Chris talked about, what opportunities are going to come up tomorrow. And I think at the core of it, of the, uh, the mentality of this could be the last chance, is recognizing that if it's asking you to sin, that isn't actually a chance at all. The chance hasn't come. So it's not even the first chance. So it certainly can't be the last. God's best in expectation will never cause us to sin. And if you ever get to a point and go, hmm, should I lie here? Should I lust here? Hmm. The answer is no. But we also ask a couple other questions. We get to compromise. It feels so right. It's got to be right because it feels right. I mean, I just, I just go with what I feel. I go with my gut. Well, how do you know that's not just the bad enchilada you had yesterday? Okay, because our guts are very fickle. Moses has to feel, though, I think a little bit, that it's a good offer. It feels good. And I think what happens is that you begin, when you begin to determine, as, as Moses maybe is tempted to do, what is right and wrong based off of what feels good, what will bring you pleasure or what will not bring you pain, you are very close to missing God's will because God may actually ask you to do the harder right over the easier wrong. He's, his will or His call for you may in fact be to do something that you would consider painful. And if you're evaluating everything but what feels good, you might miss it. How do I know that? Jesus. Pretty good example. Just because it feels good doesn't mean that you should be doing it, even if you're trying to like do it for spiritual reasons. We don't make decisions based on what might bring us the most pleasure or the least amount of pain. We make decisions based off what God says. His Word. Because honestly, if you read the Bible, there's a lot of things that are going to disagree with your disposition and are not going to feel good in your gut. But it doesn't make them wrong. And it helps us very much when it feels good to give approval to something because you want them to like you, you want them to feel good, whatever it happens to be, but you know what God's Word says. And I think the last one is not only feeling, but we think about it. We start reprocessing things. Okay, and here's what I think Moses might have done as he started using his own mind rather than God's. His own intellect rather than what God has said. Starts going, okay, this is, this is so typical of us. Maybe just me because I'm the most sinful one here. And that is that he says, okay, I'm going to let him go. I'll let him go do this. And I imagine maybe he's talking to God saying, okay, God, you said, remember what you said. Your words were, I want you to let them go. So as I interpret that, God, he is letting them go in a sense. So we should do it, right? And you begin to question, well, maybe I'm misunderstanding what God's word says. Maybe he didn't really... You know, maybe it doesn't think it means what I think it means, you know, type of thing, right? Maybe he's not really saying that. And there's a very easy way to remind yourself to go, is that correct or not? What did God say? You can just kind of go into your own world of your mind and go, well, 
I grew up knowing this, or someone told me this, or, hark, you could read it again. You know, we're always waiting for God. I wish God would say something. Tell me what to do. Tell me what not to do. I just want direction. Holy smokes, he gave 66 books of his words. And it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we kind of like, yeah, I'm not really sure what God thinks. Let me pray about it for a while. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't need prayer. But we think about it, process it, reinvent what we think it means to suit what we want. That's what Pharaoh's doing. He's negotiating. And I imagine that Moses, in the midst of it, is very tempted to sin as well. But see, God wants to redeem all of us. No compromise. 100%. Everything that we are. All of our heart. Not just parts of it. And I see this, unfortunately, with a lot of people I interact with, and people have become so flippant about it. And it blows me away, and maybe you've experienced this too, but at the heart of what we're talking about is that people really don't believe that compromising what God has said is that big a deal anymore. It's just not a big deal. I see people mention passing all the time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah we're living in sin. Oh, and that doesn't bother you? Or, you know, I just, I just drank a little too much the other night. It's no big deal. It's so funny, though. Okay. Um, yeah, man, this movie is amazing. Is this girl in it? Uh, since when did those things become, like, okay? Since when did those things become unimportant? Because it seems like no matter how small you want to make this little sin you think is no big deal... God thought it a big enough deal to kill his son over it. And as Jesus is sitting there with his hands, are you really going to want to sit and go, I didn't think it was that big a deal. Misunderstand sin. We misunderstand sin. And see, even our world isn't satisfied with 99.9%. Think about this. If our world was satisfied with 99.9%, here's some of the things that would happen. One hour of unsafe drinking water every month. Two unsafe plane landings per day at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. 16,000 pieces of mail lost by the U.S. Post Office every hour. 20,000 incorrect prescriptions every year. 500 incorrect operations each week. 50 babies dropped at birth every day. Oops. Sorry, Mr. Ford. That's just one of the 50. But we're okay with 99.9%. 22,000 checks deducted from the wrong bank accounts each hour. 32,000 missed heartbeats per person each year. What we don't understand is that in God's economy, in God's world, the standard is perfection. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, be perfect. Be perfect. And we sit and we go, but I I can't be. Exactly. Exactly. The best that God's law does for us is show us how broken and sinful we are. 
But the beauty of it is that there was someone who came and didn't compromise anything. And there was a man who came and did love God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his strength. And he is the reason we are worth anything. His life is given to us that He might live through us because the fact is we will continue to compromise and compromise and compromise. And the only reason we can stand in God's presence and we say, look at the one who didn't compromise that you might accept me. We have to get to a point because we really don't think we're that bad where we maximize what sin is because really we go, well, white lies getting drunk every now and then, a little bit of lust and porn, you know. We need to maximize what sin is and maximize the offensiveness of even the teeny little sins. And I say teeny because we call them that, not God. He was the one that said in James that if you lie, you are just as guilty as the adulterer. Why? Because God's law was given from the same God. And if you break the lying part or the adultery part, you are a law breaker. And we need someone who fulfilled it perfectly for us. And so God says, I want to redeem all of man, not parts of it. And Moses, therefore, refuses to compromise because he knows all of Israel is what God wants. And as I was thinking about that, Because in Moses' world, it was his children and his bride and his animals and all these parts of his life. I couldn't help but think, what do we are willing to leave in Egypt? What parts of our lives, when we talk about loving God with all our heart, what parts of our heart? You can have a lot of different parts. Your finances, your sex life, your relationships, your job, whatever. Name all the things that make up who you are, all the masks you wear in your life. What parts of those are you willing to give to God and He, or you're on your way to the promised land and what parts have you left in Egypt enslaved? Because Moses said, we can't leave anything. And God says, I do not want to leave anything. We don't really think of our lives that way, I don't think. Even though verses like 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says, Glorify God with all that you do. You're, you're eating. You're drinking. It's an action. It's, it's not just like, this would be descriptive of somebody. Do it! We don't take those things seriously. And so God passively allows us to have our desires. And His wrath is seen in the judgments. And in this case, we see the locusts come. And the thing about it is, we really don't experience, I said this last week, I think, we don't experience immediate judgment. But the thing about the locusts is so interesting is that locusts, you never like, okay, here come the locusts. You see them and that's it. It's too late. You cannot plan for it. You don't expect it. It comes when you, everything can be going wonderful, compromising away, and then bam, it comes. And it will assuredly come. And it will assuredly be devastating. And in this case, the locusts come and they wipe out everything that was left by the hail. So there's no fruit, no green leaf left anywhere. It decimates everything. We don't understand locusts in our culture because we don't really see a lot of locusts coming around. 
I think we have some pictures of locusts up there that are pretty nasty. Okay? They're really cute. Two at one. Yeah, well, those look like fake. But there's a couple other pictures, aren't there? Okay, let me give you some understanding of what happens with locusts. Basically, God says in the scripture that this is the biggest one ever and will ever be. So we've never had one bigger, so it's bigger than whatever I can tell you. The average size of a locust swarm is 200 to 400 square miles. So imagine how large that is. Just imagine 200 miles, right? But you shrink that down and you get really big. Huge. Biggest cities. Bigger. I think Seattle is like 100-something square miles. It's like three Seattles. In that swarm, there are 40 to 80 million locusts in less than half of a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, which equates to 423 million pounds of plants each day. A ton of locusts, which is just a tiny part of the average swarm, eats the same amount of food in a single day as 10 elephants, 25 camels, and 2,500 people. And in this case, we didn't have warning systems or chemicals to put on. It came without warning, so the farmer looks out, and he sees this swarm, and in minutes, his life will be changed dramatically. And it will be decimated, and there is nothing he can do about it. And not only will his economic world be impacted, but that of his children, that of his grandchildren, that of the community, it affects everything, and it is devastating. And not only did this ruin Egypt financially, but just like sin, it ruined what was a very beautiful country and a beautiful nation. Have you ever met somebody who has been devastated by either their choices or the simple choices of getting... It devastates people physically. At the high school, they have like those pictures of the meth. People use meth, like this beautiful picture, and then this guy with like no teeth. They're like, yeah, meth after two months. They're like, oh. That's, oh, that's drugs and stuff. It's any sin. You remember probably, maybe if some of you were here, Aaron talking about Julie, a woman that we ministered to and, and passed away early years of our church. She had, we had her fill out because she was experiencing some spiritual um, attack. And so we had felt this like inventory. And on this inventory was listed just about anything. If you can imagine any kind of abuse or sin that someone can experience, she checked every box. And it was heartbreaking. And this woman was about 40 years old, I believe. But if you ever met her, she looked like she was about 65 because of what sin had done to her. And you can look at marriages and you can see husbands and wives who have experienced sin. You can see typically the bride who is just wearing that sin. It's devastating. And it devastated this country. And the, the sad thing is that Pharaoh actually believed he was leading the right way. He believed that, you know, I'm doing the wise thing because he was trying to preserve his country. He thought he was leading them towards prosperity by not letting them go and Ironically, that's the very reason why things got destroyed, because he is not wise. What he felt was not right. When we refuse to align ourselves with what God says or heed his warning or obey his commands, things will fall apart. Sometime they will fall apart. 
Maybe now, maybe 10 years from now, but they will fall apart and you'll pay the consequences. The funny thing is in relationships, like my parents were married for 25 years. On year one, they never said, hmm, I think in 25 years we'll get divorced. Funny how no one ever plans that when they're getting married. We should pull people who get married. Like, what do you think you'll get divorced? Never. They don't plan on that. But they also don't plan on living faithfully to God throughout all of it. And so little compromises come in and it builds up and builds up and 10 years later explodes or 25 years later. I think it's frightening how much we have been perverted in the society to actually believe that when we are leading, it's actually the best thing. What I mean is this. I think the biggest plague in the church today is sexual sin in various forms. And I talk to people who actually believe that as they're leading, they think it's the most loving thing to do. Kind of like Pharaoh thought it was the best thing to do. And you talk to them and you're like, well, you know, we're, um, you have people who are sleeping before they're married. You've got people who bring porn into their marriages. And they actually have justifications for why that is. Well, this is, we love each other. This is the most loving thing for us to do together. And you go, okay. But I'll tell you right now, it is never, ever, 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 ever loving to lead someone into sin. Never. That's not loving. It is never loving to lead someone into sin. Just as it was not loving, wise, or smart for Pharaoh to lead his country into disobedience with God. No matter what anyone says. No matter how you justify it. It's never right. And so, finally, in the last part of the plague in chapter 10. God, when someone has refused and refused and refused and refused, he allows them to go into what is amounts to darkness. It says this at the end of Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, and there's no warning this time. This was the natural consequence of his continued refusal. Stretch out your hand toward the heaven. There may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Darkness. Well, first of all, God gave them a darkness that could be felt, which I think is an amazing description. And some scholars argue that it was probably a sandstorm that came through and was only covering that part of Egypt and didn't cover Goshen, but it seems like it reads differently than that. It seems like this is a God-given, ordained darkness that prevents them from having any light whatsoever in their homes. And as a result, they stay in their homes for three days and do not leave. Even though if they look out the window, they can see the light in Goshen. They hide and they choose to stay in that darkness. Because I believe, no matter how you want to cut it, darkness is reserved for the people who do not love God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their strength. And I don't want to get into a point where I'm, I'm, getting to, I'm not trying to say that you need to work your way to God. But without question, we have a responsibility to not choose darkness and not actively choose to live in sin. All that is not God is darkness. And I believe, think about this, for those 
who love God most of the time with the majority of what they have in a good number of things that they do in front of nearly everyone means that some of the time they are choosing darkness. And anyone who chooses to walk in darkness cannot say they have the light. First John says it this way, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus of the Son, Jesus, cleanses us from sin. The thing about walking in the light is this. It's not like your bumps and bruises and your dirt goes away. It's just exposed. And in John chapter 3, that's why he says people don't come to the light. But what they don't understand is that Jesus already knows. And the Bible clearly says that when you were sinners, when we were sinful, when we were broken, when he, the omniscient God, saw all the crap that we were going to do with our lives. He still said, I will love you. He knows it. So your hiding in shame isn't accomplishing anything but loneliness and withdrawing from the world and making it more painful for you. God already knows and He says, I love you. I know your bruises. I know your crap. I know what you've done. Walk in the light Come to the light and I I just cry out, how long are you going to live in darkness? How long are you going to choose to stay in your sin? How long? How long will, like the Egyptians, you sit in your place and hide, sitting in conflict and shame because you know you're doing the wrong thing? How long? And how long... We not only do what God says, or not do what God says not to do, but what about those of you who have been Christians for so long and you still have not really begun to live like Jesus? Begun to actually step out and do something in His name? Both of those people need confession. How long will you not love God with all of your heart? And I love 1 John 1 9. And we'll pray and close on that. If we confess our sins, if we confess and bring our brokenness to the light with both our mouth and our actions, He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive our sins and He will cleanse us from all of unrighteousness. And that's not something just for unbelievers. That's something for those who admit they choose to go into darkness at times. We celebrate communion every Sunday declaring that we desire by the blood of, or by the power of Christ to live in the light. It doesn't have to continue after today. Living in the darkness for you can end today if you confess that Christ died on the cross for your sin, which is a big deal. Every little thing, you will never be perfect. You will never 
not compromise. But Christ lived a life that you should have and died the death that you should have that he might give that life to you. And we confess that we desire darkness at times more than light, but now walk to the light. Sounds spooky. Come to the light. But it's true. Let's pray. Father, as Moses took his sandals off when he approached you at the burning bush, we remove our sandals, Lord, recognizing your holiness and that the only reason that we can come into your presence is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Father, I pray that everyone is here. You will convict them or you will comfort them, but you will show them, Lord, that you know all and everything about them. You know the parts of their heart that you are in charge of and they love you with and the parts that they have not given you, God. And I pray that you will redeem all of us. You will change all of our hearts because we recognize that the power is in you to do that and not us. We are sinful, we are broken, we are in need, Lord, and we cry for you to show us your light. Father, give us the power, the strength to come to you as you draw us. In your Son's blood we pray, through your Spirit, amen. Please stand and respond with us.